Well, good evening. How y'all feeling? Time out. Time out. Hold on. Y'all just got done singing about the relentless love of God. And when I said, how y'all doing? Uh, what y'all hungry? That was a stomach growl. I don't know. Like, how y'all doing? All right. I don't, I don't want a superficial woo just because I said it. Like, y'all, y'all cool? Y'all straight? All right, cool. Hey, listen. Um, this is how I want to open up. If you're physically able, would you stand with me for the reading of the word tonight? We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It's a bulky text, but I promise we're going to work through this thing real well tonight. Luke chapter 7, verses 36, all the way through 50. I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we're going to dive into this wonderful story about what it looks like to love the Lord and to express without any shame love for Jesus. So the word of God says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed the feet of Jesus and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, in the time that we have together tonight, it is my desire to make your word known. I pray that you would use me as nothing more than a microphone to amplify your word. And Holy Spirit, I beg you, I beseech you, and I plead with you to draw everyone's heart to the focus of this text and that you would not just allow us to be hearers of the word, but Holy Spirit, that you would begin to mobilize every single one of us to be doers of the word. These things we ask in the mighty, matchless, conquering name of King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So as we work through this idea of loving the Lord, I think about expressions of love. And obviously, we own this side of Valentine's Day. I was raised in the hood. We don't say Valentine's. We say Valentine's. So Valentine's Day just happened, right? And, and so, yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds of nuances about what was going down. Well, in, in my house, at the Horton household, Me and my wife have been married for almost 15 years. So Valentine's Day is one of them things that I have an apologetic for. So when the culture at large is is going out buying bouquets, bouquets, however you want to say, the flowers and candy, and out in L.A., everybody got to hustle. So they selling them things at every street corner, right? And so, like, everybody's out there scrambling. And I'll be telling these dudes, like, see, man, if you just love the one God gave you 364 days in addition to this day, you ain't going to be out here stressing. You're going to be good. And so the reality of it is, though, even with that understanding, my wife 
She doesn't have an expectancy. She ain't bougie and looking for the material things, but it's the reality that she wants to know that she's loved and valued and appreciated. And so the night before, so Valentine's Eve, if that's even a thing, like, like the 13th, it was a stressful day. It was a very stressful day all day. There was tension in the home between our daughters and my wife. And then I got sucked into the drama torn away from sermon prep, doing the rigors of study, and I've got to go be the mediator in this family drama. And then I get sucked in, and now we need another mediator, so we're crying out to the Holy Spirit to come and do something, because we all in our flesh right now. And it was a stressful day to get our kids to and fro, basketball, practice, school, our son to his therapy, like all these things were moving parts throughout the whole day. And it led to me wanting to surprise my wife because we were going to go out to dinner as a family because my wife had to coach a basketball game Valentine's night. So we knew that. But because of the drama earlier, like we all lost our appetite. Didn't nobody want to see each other that night. We wanted to go to separate corners and just kind of just pray that the night would go away and we'd wake up and it'd be a new day. Like it was that stressful just a couple days ago. And so I rolled up into the local grocery store with my son. And he's a fixated on all the candy. And he's like, can I get this? Can I get this? And I'm like, hey, chill, man. We out here trying to get dinner tonight. You eat your food, then you can get the candy. And they've been showing this commercial ever since I was a little boy, the Canterbury egg commercial, you know, the, with the little bunny and the lion's like, Rawr, like that. Y'all seen that one? All right, Google it if you don't know, I'm showing my age now, but Google that thing, you know what I'm talking about. So my son kept seeing that commercial. So he saw the Canterbury eggs, right? And he wanted one of them. And I'm like, you ain't gonna like it, bro. And he's like, daddy, I want the candy. I'm like, you ain't gonna like it. Trust me, homie, you ain't gonna like it. I done been there and done that and I lived and you ain't gonna like it. He wouldn't listen to me. He wanted it. So I got him the egg and that kept him passive the entire time I got the shopping done. And so my wife called me and I said, hey, baby, what do you want to do for dinner tonight? She's like, look, I'm spread every which way. I ain't even thinking about that. I'm so frustrated with our kids. I don't want to do anything. Just forget it. And da, 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 da. And she's like, and I'm in my flesh. And I'm like, well, how can I help you? And she's like, I don't want you to fix anything right now. And I'm like, you're kind of tying my hands behind my back, girl. What am I supposed to do right now? And she's like, just, I don't know. Like, only God knows what needs to be done. So I said, all right, well, then let's pray. She's like, well, you can pray, but I'm just going to sit and listen. And I said, all right, that's cool. I can dig that. As long as you ain't interrupting my prayer, I'm good with that. And then she says something that just, I don't know, it just triggered my flesh, man. And I said, you know what? Forget it. Lord, in the name, and I'm right there in the middle of the grocery store with my son just with this little egg going like this. People walking all around me in California. I'm talking to myself, they think, which is normal out there. And I'm just sitting there like, Lord, I'm in my flesh. My chest is hurting. My wife is irritated. Ain't nothing worked out today. I'm so irritated. I crucify my flesh. According to Galatians 2.20, right now, even though I feel my flesh is fighting back. And I'm, this is legit what I'm saying on the phone and my wife all I hear is just <sighs> like she's just like fuming and I'm like and I pray and I'm like in Jesus name amen and I'm like man go have a good basketball practice she's like all right yup and she hangs up like saying yup is the worst thing we, we got a history with the word yup in our relationship that goes back all the way back to the 90s and it's not good in our relationship and so I'm like, she can really go in with yup after I pray? Who ends their prayer with yup? Like, I'm just like, you know what? Forget it. I wanted to just walk out the store and go home. That's what I wanted to do. And I said, okay, Lord, there's got to be a redeemable moment in this situation. There has to be. And I'm like, Father, just give me insight. How can I serve my wife, my daughters, and my passive son right now with the little Canterbury egg? How can I do this to honor you. Because real talk in my flesh, I don't want to. I want to throw a pity party. I want to be angry. I want to be mad. But I said, Holy Spirit, I need you. So I went, bought some chicken, fried and grilled, got some sides, got some Hawaiian sweet rolls, got some little cakes, got all these extra little things. And then I was walking by and I said, I want to set some ambiance. So I went and got one of them little paper mache tablecloths with the hearts on it. I got these cool little table place settings. I got these little dollar candles that were red, white, and pink. And I went back to the crib and just started putting all the food together in the oven and getting everything together. And by the time my wife came home with our daughter, the lights were down, the candles were lit, the food was being cooked. 
And she walked in like, what's going on? And all I could say was, hey, man, but God, that's all I can say. And she was like, you surprised me. I can't believe you did this. And she just melted. And she just gave me a hug. And we teared up. And she said, thank you. And I said, look, I had to learn to, I had to, I had to lean on Jesus. I didn't know how to lead us through this moment. I really didn't. And I said, I figured, man, just giving expressions of love in this moment because of our life experiences would help recalibrate the entire environment to once again focus on God, not on the crisis moments that we've been enduring. The experiences in life should help us to learn how to fight through our flesh and show expressions of love. So if I can do that for my wife and my children, why would I not do that for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So as I look at this text, I think the main point that I want us to grapple with is this. Experiencing the forgiveness of our sins should lead us to more meaningful expressions of love for our Lord. Let me run it back one more again. Experiencing the forgiveness of our sins should lead us to more meaningful expressions of love for our Lord. And I believe this sister in this text really gives us that model. So the first thing I want us to look at as we walk through this text is this. In verse 36, it says, And one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, y'all should know enough of the context that Jesus was in that these are them boys that want to kill him. Like, you look at Jesus' ministry, and when he began to do miracles in the open, and they, the Pharisees, would try to trap him, Jesus, unashamedly, you can read it throughout John's gospel, would put himself equal with the Father. As the Father's working, I'm working. They wanted to pick up stones and kill him. Jesus consistently expressed, go on me, I, I am. He's saying, I am equal with the Father. The Father sent me, I and the Father are one. So all these boys are looking to kill him. And one of them says, hey, will you come over to the crib and share a meal with me? And Jesus accepts the invitation. It's amazing to me how even in the midst of this group, this squad that wanted to go in on Jesus, he saw them as individuals and was willing to engage and accept an invitation to where he was invited to go. The implications of that even in our own lives should say there should be no such thing as an untouchable person or group in our world when it comes to believers in Jesus Christ. That we need to be wise and accepting of invitations not to sin, but to engage with the non-believing world so that we can make Jesus known through our lips and our lives in their midst. Show them that salvation is a multifaceted gift and then give an appeal and an invitation for them to embrace Christ as Lord themselves. Jesus accepted the invitation. Then as we go on in verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. The woman heard Jesus was going to be there, and she went into the house with an alabaster jar of ointment. She actually came prepared to express love to Jesus in that moment. She wept, and then she wiped the tears that fell on Jesus' feet with her hair. Number one, her weeping was so uncontrollable that as the tears were falling on Jesus' feet as she was kissing them, they began to clean the dirt off of his feet. And then she did the unthinkable in her cultural day. She took her hair down and began to wipe the feet of Jesus. Now, this was scandal of all scandals. This would have been caught on video with a hashtag and it would have went viral. The fact of what she was doing in our day, I guess a parallel would be as if, and she didn't do this in this way, but I'm trying to give you like the idea of the scandal culturally, how this was taboo, is if a woman just came into a room topless with no bra, no shirt, people would be like, oh my gosh, like that's the kind of scandal that this was. 
is that she was willing to forsake the cultural taboo. It's not a biblical taboo, but a cultural taboo that she was saying, I'm taking my hair done, which is the glory of the body. And this is the most disgusting part of the body in that cultural context. I'm taking my glory to meet the grittiness of the feet of my Savior, and I'm wiping his feet, which are wet by my tears with my very hair. Like that is a scandal. I promise everyone would have stopped and be like, oh snap, you see what she's doing? Oh my, what is she doing? Even to the point that Simon in verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. This boy is sitting there in judgment, watching all this going on, and Luke gives us insight to what's going on inside of his heart as he's sitting on the sideline in judgment of this woman. It's crazy. Because I think of a time in my life when I sat in judgment of someone else, and just like the Pharisee Simon, I actually was sitting in error as well and didn't even see it. I was sitting in the Atlanta airport one day and if you've ever flown into Atlanta, you know it's terminal T and then it's A, B, C, D, E, F. So there's all these terminals. And I was living in Atlanta at the time in Decatur where it's greater. And I went to Hartsfield, go through security and everything and I sit down and I just chill and I just began to go through my phone. And they kept calling this dude's name. They kept saying, oh boy's name, your flight's about to leave, we're gonna give up your seat. Like legit, they called his name at least a dozen times to the point that I was like, oh, come on bro, where you at? Goodness gracious, homie, like you finna get left. So they ended up giving up his seat to a person on standby. And as soon as they closed, it was almost like it was written in Hollywood, like door closed, here comes old boy, no. And he rolls up and he slams his hand on the desk and is like, I'm not late, am I? And they like, I'm sorry, your flight gone. We done gave up your seat. You need to go over there to the help desk and get booked on the next flight. He was like, no, no, no. I was in the bathroom. And she was like, I don't need to know all that. Your flight is gone. Like, you need to go over there. And I sat there watching this, like, low key. I was like videotaping in case something was going to pop off, right? So I'm just sitting there like, oh, snap, what's the next move, right? And I sat there and I remember saying this in my mind, like, bruh, she done called your name a dozen times, homie. Like, that's on you, bruh. Like, you should have been here. You should have been here on time, ready to board. That's on you. Delta ain't going to pay for this mistake you made, bruh. That's on you. You need to go, like old girl said, and go talk to them over there to get on the next flight. Like, I sat there in judgment of old boy the whole time. And then I looked at my boarding pass. And I realized, oh, snap. I'm in Terminal T, and I'm supposed to be in Terminal E, and my flight already started boarding, and I got to hustle because now I'm in the same shoes as old boy. (laughs) And by God's grace, I made my flight. And so as I got on the flight, I just sat there, and I was like, dang. It was so easy to sit in judgment of another person, detach myself from any form of empathy, let alone sympathy, watch them in their crisis and be like, hey, that's on you, man. Like, that's your fault. While the whole time, I'm at the wrong place at the wrong time. Had it not been for God's grace, I would have done the same thing. It's easy sitting in judgment of other people. And this dude, Simon the Pharisee, is watching this woman express love to the Lord Jesus, and he sits there like, man, if Jesus knew that this chick was out there in them streets, he wouldn't even be letting her touch him like that. Like, man, I thought this dude was a prophet. Amazingly, Jesus is more than a prophet because he's truly God and truly man, so therefore he is omniscient. He knows the thoughts of Simon, and this is what's amazing. Then Jesus basically answers Simon's thought without Simon even saying anything. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He called Jesus teacher. At first, Simon may have hoped that maybe this is the prophet. Oh, he ain't the Messiah. He ain't God. Maybe he's a prophet. He'd be doing some cool things out in them streets, healing people, laying people walking, declaring lepers to be cleansed. Like, okay, he'd be doing some things. Like, maybe he a prophet. 
Oh, but now the old girl touched him? Oh, shawty touched you? Bro, you ain't no prophet. You should have known. So at best you a teacher. So, hey, well, that's your world, teacher. You my guest. Whatever you got to say, say it, teacher. Then Jesus goes in. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. I want to put this in some context so that way we understand. I live in L.A. and progressively every year minimum wage is going to keep going up until $15 by the year 2022. So right now minimum wage in Los Angeles County is $11 per hour. So if you do $11 an hour for an eight-hour work day and basically a denarii was one day's wages for an agricultural laborer. So the minimum wage of our day would be a good comparison to give us an understanding of the weightiness of Jesus' parable. So if you take $11 times eight hours is $88 for the work day, obviously, maybe they're contracted workers, 1099, so you don't get the withholdings out, all right? Adults know what I'm talking about. You kids will find out. So debtor number one has 500 denarii in debt. That's $44,000. Debtor number two has 50, which is $4,400. So there's a big difference. 44 stacks, 4,400. And he says there's two debtors. There's one creditor. The creditor recognizes both of them, the one who owes 44,000, the one who owes 4,400. Neither one of them can pay. So he cancels both of their debts out of his grace and mercy. And he asked Simon, which one will love him more? Now, Simon's got to be sitting there like, okay, how you trying to trap me? Where's the, where's the loophole? You trying to make me look dumb. I didn't see you do this to some of my colleagues. I ain't going out like that, Jesus. So he's like, so man, you know, carry the one. And so, I guess the one who owes more would love the one who forgave him more than the one who had a little amount of debt compared to the one that had the massive amount of debt. And Jesus was like, no, you're right, bro. Like, it ain't no trick question. You're right. At that point, Simon's like, yeah, see, see, man, I'll be knowing some things too, Jesus. Like, I can see, I can see that. The text don't say it, but I can see it, all right? But then Jesus flips it. And Jesus says, you see old girl right here? Let me kind of show you how this parable relates to what's going on. You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Then he says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven for little loves little. Simon didn't even do the bare, minimum, customary expressions of courtesy to Jesus, let alone show Jesus love. Somebody walks in that is your guest of honor because they didn't have shoes like Chucks and Jordans. They had all open toes back then. So all the dust and the rigmarole from the ground in the Middle East made everybody feet dirty and stank and filthy. That's why it was the grimiest part of the body. And at least it would be the cultural expression of courtesy to say, hey, man, I got a servant. Servant's going to come and wash your feet. That's why the upper room experience of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples is so meaningful because they're like, well, hold on, bro. You are God in the flesh. You don't wash my feet. I'll wash your feet. Like, what are you doing? And then Jesus rebukes Peter. Hey, man, if I don't wash you, you ain't got no part of me. And I love Peter. Well, shoot, don't just do my feet, bro. Get my elbow behind my ear, my head, like everything, homie. Like, I want to be all in with you, Jesus. And when I think through that, and I look at what Simon withheld from Jesus, common expressions of courtesy. There was a lack of hospitality. The text doesn't tell us why. We don't need to understand why he didn't. We don't need to know that. What we need to know is he didn't even give him common courtesies, and that is in contrast to the woman that gave him unashamed expressions of love. So what is the difference between the two responses? The difference is one recognized the weightiness of their own sinfulness, and they encountered the one who can forgive their sins. And walking in forgiveness out after an encounter with Christ then led to this expression of love for the Lord. She had been forgiven. 
So she expressed faithful love to Jesus. I love verse 48 because verse 48 is a game changer. Verse 48 says, and he said to her, now he talks to the woman directly and he says, your sins are forgiven. Here's what's so fresh about that. When Jesus said your sins are forgiven, he didn't say it in the present tense. He actually said it in the perfect tense, which means at some time before this encounter of her expressing love to Jesus, she had already met Jesus. And when she had met Jesus that time before, she was forgiven for her sins. So when she walked into that room, she had already walked into that room as a forgiven person by Jesus. She was an ex-sinner. The amazing thing about the perfect tense is like, if I wind up this piece of paper, the action of winding up that piece of paper is done. It's a completed action, but the results of that paper still being wound up remain the same. When she encountered Jesus and she expressed her need for forgiveness and Jesus forgave her for her sins from that moment perpetually throughout eternity, which includes when she entered into that house ready to worship and show love to the Lord because she was forgiven. So when he's saying your sins are forgiven, he's like, I've been forgave you and you are still in a state of forgiveness by me. You're still forgiven. And she understood that. And the fact that she understood that I met Jesus, I had an encounter with him, and he forgave me for my many, many, many sins. And I came ready to show love to my Lord because he has forgiven me. I stand forgiven, therefore I still love my Lord because he has forgiven me for much. But notice that everyone else in that spot assumed that she walked in as a sinner. It doesn't matter what they thought. It doesn't matter what their limited knowledge of her lifestyle was like. She knew Jesus and Jesus knew her. The only people that it mattered to was her and Jesus in regards to her state of being one who was forgiven. And then I love verse 49 and 50. Because the people who were watching this woman take her hair and wipe Jesus's feet. We're already like, this is the scandal of the day. And then for him to hit Simon with that parable and then actually make this woman the heroine of the night and Simon to be the one who was in need of forgiveness, flipped everything upside down. And then the people were like, time out. Who is this? Who is this dude? Who even forgives sins? This was a common expression that we see in the gospel narratives of people blown away by the miracles Jesus does, but also the fact that he forgives sins. Israel was looking for a political Messiah to free them and liberate them from their oppressor. They weren't looking for a, a spiritual Messiah. They were not looking for their sins to be forgiven because they were walking under the assumption that we're already righteous because we are physically in the lineage of Abraham. So we're good. We just need social liberation, not spiritual liberation. But the reality of what Jesus' ministry shows is that when he stepped into the cesspool known as Israel, there was this saturation with sinfulness. Even to the point that the Pharisees would lower the standards of the law so that they could then keep them in order to give the public appearance of a righteousness that the people still would not be able to obtain. It's like this, like y'all know them Fisher Price basketball goals that go three feet tall? So I taught my kids how to play basketball, all right? Like, I can say that's one thing I'll take to the grave. My wife, she the hooper. She played in college and all that. I will not confirm or deny if she can beat me in 21. That's beside the point. That's not in the text. But what I want to talk about 
is them Fisher-Price goals, that three-foot Fisher-Price goal. What I love about that goal is when I've taught all my children how to shoot a basket, I use the three-foot Fisher-Price goal because I overstand it, and all I got to do is take the ball and keep dunking. Like, I hit 100% of my shots all day, every day, when I'm just boom, 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 and my kids are like, dang, Daddy, you're the best. I'm like, I mean, you know, I'll be doing me, but I ain't going to say I'm the best now, you know. I, I could give Brown Brown a little, a little uh, you know, run for his money on this three-foot Fisher-Price goal. Now, if I go play basketball in the park, ain't nobody hooping on a three-foot basketball Fisher-Price goal. Everybody playing with the NBA regulation 10-foot joint, right? So what I have to recognize is that at my best, there is no human possible way I will hit 100% of my shots when it's regulation. When it's regulation side, it only exposes my inability to, uh, uh, and, and highlights my imperfections. But the reality of a three-foot, oh yeah, all day, every day, I look like I'm hitting 100% of my shots. Well, that's kind of the framework of what the interpretation of the law was when it came to the religious elite of Jesus' day, is that they had lowered it to the point that it was this external-looking righteousness. That's why Jesus hammered them in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You heard it said, but I tell you. He was basically saying, I am telling you authoritatively as one who is fully God what God's perspective is on the law. Now, these individuals who are broken, dead sinners, they will say, I don't commit adultery because I have not slept with another Jewish man's wife. However, they could sleep with a slave. They could sleep with a pagan prostitute. They could sleep with a Gentile woman. As long as it wasn't this married Jewish woman to another Jewish man, I don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, not only are you wrong because you are committing adultery, but if you study a woman and you sexually want to engage with her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. See, what Jesus was saying is, knock down the Fisher-Price standard and go back to the standard of God's law, which is perfect, holy righteousness, and it shows all the imperfections of every human being outside of Jesus Christ. It's not until you understand the weightiness of the law and the holy, perfect, perfect standard of righteousness that God the Father has. He cannot lower his standard if he is perfect. So he says perpetually, this is where you have to be, humanity. And we say, there's no way we can reach that. The law has no emotion. The law has no feelings. The law says, you're a lawbreaker. You're broken. You sin. You sin. You sin. The law consistently shows our brokenness and our sinfulness. The law gives us no comfort. That's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus met the perfect standard of our God that we could never meet. He lived holy obedience. He is still sinless. And the reality of what the law shows us that this woman in this text understood, I am a broken sinner who can do nothing to wash away my sin debt that God holds against me. I need to declare spiritual bankruptcy. When I declare I am guilty and I cannot save myself, then I can cry out to God to forgive me and save me, something I cannot do. She understood that. That's why Jesus tells her in verse 50, your faith has saved you. He didn't say it was your love. He didn't say it was your understanding of the teachings of the rabbis. He didn't say it was the length of your hair or the color of your skin or the lineage that you come from. No, no, no. He said, it's your faith that has saved you, that she actually believed Jesus was the only one who could forgive her for her sin debt. It's the same theme throughout Scripture from First and Second Testaments that we see in the Scriptures is that salvation is a gift that is given to us that we receive by faith. It is that we actually believe the truth of God. We believe our sinfulness that is pointed out by the word of God. We believe our brokenness. We believe by faith that there's nothing that we can do outside of crying out to God to forgive us for our sinfulness. The beauty of the gospel tells us that. Like I think about it even as I, as, I, as, I, as I engage with people who many of them don't even have any touch points with the word of God and they live here in America. Like much of where I live is a pre-Christian context. It ain't post-Christian. People ain't saying, oh man, I went to Awana when I was a kid. People don't even know what Awana is. They think it's a burger joint. Like Awana burger? Like is that what you're talking about? Like 
Nah, what are you talking about? A joint called a wine, a burger? Nah, I don't know what you're saying. What is that? Like people don't even have a context for the word of God. They don't even have a context for biblical heroes of the faith. They don't even understand. They've never been engaged or intersected with the word of God. And they live here in America. This ain't overseas. This is across the street. And sitting there and thinking, how do I explain to somebody the weightiness of the debt of sin that they are storing up for the day of wrath? How do you explain that to somebody? How do you explain to somebody that being a finite creature who has an eternal, infinite amount of debt imposed upon them, that there is an impossibility of you being finite, absorbing that infinite amount of debt and wrath that God has for you. And so learning to explain the weightiness of sin in ways that people who have no context with the scriptures can understand. And one of the ways I tell them how, how, how foolish it is to think that I'm good because of karma or one day it's going to all even out. And if there's a God, then I'll be good because I'm not like those people. I ain't running into no school and killing 17 students. I ain't molesting kids. I ain't doing so. They're going to consistently say, okay, compared to others. So how do we let them know that, yo, our whole human race is equally fallen? Our whole human race is depraved. The whole of our humanity, all the way back to our first father, Adam, has been infected with sin. Then when we look at Psalm 51, 5, that while we were shaped in our mother's womb, sin was already woven into the fabric of our makeup. Like we were born dead in sin and we lived as sinful practitioners and we kept stacking up and racking up the weightiness of the debt that we see the scripture tells is on us. It's when you begin to understand the weightiness of that debt that you begin to understand the beauty of forgiveness. And you begin to think through what you deserve, but yet when you cry out for forgiveness and grace by faith through Jesus, what you're actually given. When you receive the mercy of God, the mercy of God says, I am withholding what you rightfully should get, my wrath, eternal separation from me. But the grace of God, which says, but now I give you what you don't deserve, forgiveness, reconciliation, declaring you to be not guilty for all of eternity when by faith you embrace the work of my son. So when we think about that, explaining the weightiness of sin, this woman understood it. She knew her sins were many. There's a lot of people in our world, they know their sins are many, but they've never heard the pathway to Jesus. They've never heard that there is someone who climbed on a cross and absorbed the total, total wrath of God on their behalf and by faith, when they hear that his resurrection is a reality, that the payment that he made for their sins was accepted by the Father, that his resurrection put the whole universe on notice, that your sins, though they are many, can be forgiven. The only currency that the Father accepts is pure shed blood and with the spotless lamb slain before the foundation of the world, shed his blood, absorbed the sin debt, and rose. God the Father is telling us no matter your ethnicity, no matter your gender, no matter your socioeconomic status or your geographic location, that you can by faith embrace Jesus and have your sin debt removed. Then you can worship and love the Lord. And the beauty of that leads us, for those who know Christ, even to this, there's no other way to say it. We get very eh when it comes to expressing love for Jesus. We're so conditioned by the comforts of this life that we forget the weightiness of our own sins and what was due for us. And we get distracted and we lose our fire and our passion to simply love the Lord. And it is my prayer by hearing the testimony of this sister 
that you would think through, man, I should have been dead. We should have got pulled over that night. I should be in jail. I should have three or four kids. I should have a disease that's ravaging my body. But if not for God, I would have died in my sins. So even if I did go to jail, or even if I do have a disease, or even if I took somebody's life, that the reality is if I'm still breathing, that God allowed me to not die in my sins. Like thinking through that. This is why I think one of the connectors, and I can't give empirical data to back this up, but I think when we stop honestly enjoying the truthfulness of the gospel to the point that we share it, that's when our heart gets real calloused. That's when our heart gets hardened. And we no longer care that there are people around us in our own homes that don't know Jesus. In my life, there's been a couple of things that have happened recently. One, I've had a family member who died. And the reality of the family member who died, this broke me because when my mom embraced Jesus in 1978 at a Billy Graham crusade, she turned her back on the Roman Catholic faith that our family, being Mexican, says you never separate your faith and your family. You're Catholic and you're a Camacho. You don't separate the two. When she met Jesus and told the family that she's a Christian, they ostracized her. They made fun of her. They ridiculed her. They said, how can you turn your back on your family? How could you change religions? And she would try to express to this family member, no, I know Jesus personally. And she would give constant appeals since the late 70s to this family member. And a few weeks ago, my mom called me and said, our family member is about to go into eternity. They've put them in hospice. They're giving a few weeks, but you know how it goes. It could maybe be a few days. And so my mom said, I'm going to meet with them at this time on this day. And I asked my mama to call me at that time so I can pray with her. And I was chilling, talking to a dude, and I got the call from my mom, and I walked outside. And I'm on the north side of Long Beach, literally crying praying out loud in the parking lot, begging and pleading with the Father to draw my family member to Jesus, begging that he would not let them die in their sins. I had no shame. I didn't care who was watching because the eternity of my family member who has a pattern of almost over 40 years rejecting Jesus now came down to the last few moments of their life, and I had no shame in begging and crying for Jesus to do something. And a few days later, I got the text that she passed. And I asked my mom, do you think there was a profession of faith made? And my mom was like, I do not. And waking up at four o'clock in the morning to that news, it drove my heart into a place of grief that I couldn't shake for a few days, to be honest with you. I didn't wanna eat. I wanted to fly back to where my family was, but I knew that I couldn't. I had things that I had to do. I had to go preach somewhere. And the level of that grief burdened my heart to break away a lot of the callousness of my own heart to say, Lord, so often I pray that you would intersect Christians with my unsaved family members who were competent of the word of God who are excited about Jesus and they deeply live to make him known. I pray that God does that for my family members and then God hit me with, how do you know you're not that answer to somebody else's prayer for these people in LA? And I sat there and said, then turn my grief into a desire and a burden for the lost around me. And as I've been praying that God has been opening doors, as I've been praying that and I've been proclaiming the righteousness of Jesus and the weightiness of the brokenness of our sinfulness and our need and desperation for Jesus, God has been doing great things. 
But the reality is it shouldn't have to take a family member dying every now and then for me to be recalibrated to the necessity of making Jesus known and loving my Lord. It should be an everyday reality that we walk in as believers. And as I I look at this text, I mean, it's rocked me to the point that I've asked our whole church plant to join with me and our other pastor to deny ourselves from food at certain times, to deny ourselves from the comforts that distract us from loving Jesus, and to approach God directly and say, share with us your burden for the lost around us. Because it's easy to live in ignorance of those who are spiritually dead around us. It's easy to seek a Christian enclave in a world that is hostile against our faith. It's easy to do those things and to grow to a level of comfort that we're never telling anybody about Jesus. And we're only loving the Lord when we're together with other saints. But I think the cry of this conference as it relates to the context of loving the Lord is loving the Lord not just here, but everywhere that we go. Because the commission that Jesus gives her is beautiful because the final piece that he says to her is go in peace. Go in peace. And the way that that is phrased, as you're going, keep on going in peace. He is commissioning her. She can go in peace because she now has peace with God. She has been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And as she goes and as she keeps on going, she should go with the confidence that her and God are good because Christ has brought them together. That is the commission that Christ is giving to us. That we are to go as we love our Lord, as we live on mission, as we walk in obedience and even when we sin, even when we disobey, even when we love comforts more than we love Christ, even when we get distracted, even when we're not sharing the gospel, even when we're all about ourselves, even in the midst of all those times, the peace of God is never redacted from us. That's what the gospel reminds us of, is that we walk in this peace that we have with God because of Jesus Christ. So when we keep going back to the beauty of the gospel, it allows us to grow in a deeper expression of love for our Lord. As we experience life in Christ, we then begin to have genuine expressions of love for our Lord. When I sit there and I force myself to think, that for those years of my life that I didn't know Jesus, what I was saying is I really thought I had a plan to talk to God about my own sin and that as a finite human being, I was gonna somehow, I was so deceived, I thought I was somehow gonna stand before a holy and righteous God and say, no, 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 I'm good because I went to church. No, no, I'm good because my mom is a Christian. I'm good because I raised my hands. I'm good because I cried. I'm good because I went to missions trips. And in the scriptures, none of those things remove my sin. But the reality of me thinking that, and this is what I tell people who think their own righteousness, not just in the context of church attendance, but their own self-righteousness, which is really the sin of pride, that they think the sin of pride is going to wash away their sins. How foolish that is. That I tell them it's like if we go to the ocean, And I take a cup from the gas station and say, I'm going to put the whole ocean in this cup. How foolish would I sound? And people overwhelmingly, yeah, that's dumb. There's no way you can fit the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean into that cup. And I'm like, well, in a similar way, the ocean of death that we have racked up, we're finite, restricted, confined individuals. And rather than us consuming the ocean, the ocean consumes us. We're the cup. But only one that is greater than the ocean, who is Christ, climbed on a cross and became like a sponge. And when the Father poured the cup of wrath 
onto Jesus. He absorbed it down to the last drop because he is truly eternal. He is truly God and he became truly man so that he could sympathize with us and live the perfect life that we could never live. And when he was buried, it showed that death was a reality. But when he rose, God the Father said, I accept the payment that you made on behalf of all those who could not make it themselves. And when I think about the gorgeous reality of the gospel and my own sinfulness, not just before I knew Jesus, but as I've been walking with Jesus, all of that sin was put on him, but not just for me. I think of all the Old Testament saints that God had forbearance with, that God said, I'm going to deal with your sin in the future. And while Jesus was on that cross, all the sin debt from the Old Testament saints and all the sin debt from those who would embrace Christ after the resurrection, it was all placed on Jesus. He consumed it down to the last drop. That's why I can wake up with the assurance of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus Period. That means if I didn't share the gospel, that means if I've been walking in my flesh, that means that if I'm more committed to my comforts than Jesus as a Christian, that I can approach the throne of grace in my time of need for forgiveness and recalibration to the cross because of the gospel, receive forgiveness, receive empowerment, and then go out in peace, making Jesus known. That's what it's about. Because in doing so, I'm showing my love for my Lord. Go in peace as you were going. As we watch that opening video for the conference, and as we think about who do we love, what do we love, there's nobody else that deserves our ongoing, unconditional affection than Jesus. I mean that. Nobody. Nobody else could pay for your sins, not even you. That's why selfishness is such an attack on the gospel. Because I am telling myself, not in a positive self-care kind of a way, but in a form of idolatry. I idolize myself to pursue what I want and I deny Jesus and I take him off the throne of my heart so that I can exalt myself above Jesus. That's the depth of that sin that creeps into our hearts as believers. And the reality of what we are called to do is love our Lord. Show him that we love him with as many expressions that we can. And if we know our Lord, I believe that we will love our Lord. And as we experience life, we will grow with greater depths of affection for our Lord. And I think a natural consequence of growing in more love for the Lord will result in three practices that we creatively desire to do. Number one, we make Jesus known. We let people know who the Lord that we love is and what he has done. Two, we tell them salvation is a multifaceted gift. Multifaceted. It's not just, oh, I don't go to hell, and it's, oh, I don't get burned by the lake of fire. That's one aspect of it. It's not a one-dimensional gift. It's multifaceted. I remember from my 21st birthday when my wife, Alicia, she was my girlfriend at the time, she gave me arguably one of the best gifts that I've ever received on my birthday. We were just talking at this time, but we grew up together, so she knew a lot about me. And she threw me a surprise birthday party with some of the homies, and we were in this Starbucks parking lot in Kansas City, and she rolled around the corner with this cake. And it really took me by surprise. I was like, oh, snap. Like, they all rolled up on me out of nowhere. I thought they were going to jump me. And I'm like, oh, man. Like, and they was like, she's like, nah, silly boy. Like, we want to celebrate your birthday. I never really had nothing like that before. And I was just like, dang, thank you. Like, I was touched. And then she had me blow out the candles. She said, now close your eyes. And she walked back to her Ford Focus with the hatchback, the old school joint. And then she opened up the hatchback. And then she gave me this wicker basket with baby blue, uh, like, tissue paper covering the contents. 
And I was like, what is that? She said, this is your birthday present, singular, birthday present. This is your gift from me. And I was like, oh. I was like, dang, you know me because my favorite color, baby blue. Like, oh, snap. Like, you even got the baby blue tissue paper. She's like, open it up. So I opened it up. And lo and behold, what I saw took me back. Number one, she had a box of Twinkies in there. Now, <laughs> this is before the bankruptcy and they sold the recipe because the Twinkies today ain't what the Twinkies was when I was growing up. So y'all generation been cheated. So my generation had the real Twinkies. And this was when I was like 40 pounds lighter. So I could still eat a box of Twinkies back then and you know, play basketball two minutes later. So the reality was she got me this box of Twinkies, had eight of them in there. And I'm like, dang, girl. I'm like, man, that's what's up. She said, oh, I ain't done. Keep looking. So then I saw this VHS tape of the movie Karate Kid. The original joint, not with Jaden Smith, right? Uh, and let me just qualify. So VHS, is we used to have these boxes, and you had to put this. Uh, okay, so yeah, it wasn't, wasn't streamed, all right? So like, it was a legit box cartridge we had to put in this thing. So I was like, dang, you got me Karate Kid. She's like, keep looking. She got me these vanilla-scented candles because I have a very dull sense of smell, but the one smell I can pick up on is vanilla. So she knew that. And I'm like, dang, you got vanilla-scented candles. Then I saw a Snicker bar, which is one of my all-time favorite, like, candies to eat. Like, I don't eat a lot of candy, but I was like, dang, like, you got me a snicker. And I kept looking, and the more I saw, and then she hit me with the ultimate at the very bottom. She said, there's, 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 there's another thing in there. So I looked, and I was like, oh, wow. It was a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos and regular corn nuts, right? Now, y'all like, oh, that's silly. No, 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 because look, the very first day I met my wife, Alicia, when we was kids doing ministry in the projects, we shared a snack at the gas station, Cool Ranch Doritos and regular corn nuts. I was like, hashtag, won't he do it? Like, I'm like, dang. <laughs> I was ready to give my heart and everything I had, which was no money in my bank account at that moment to make that girl my wife. I was like, you have legit won me over. Nobody will ever give me anything as meaningful as this. It was a multifaceted gift. When we make Jesus known and we preach salvation in Jesus, not as fire protection in eternity, but as forgiveness of sins, being bought out of sin slavery, being redeemed, being made a child of God, co-heirs with Christ. When we tell them that we were spiritually illegitimate, but we embrace Jesus, now we're adopted into the family. When we say we were guilty sinners until we met Jesus and God has forensically declared us not guilty for all of eternity and God's not into double jeopardy, so we can never become unjustified. We will always be justified that the moment we embrace Jesus and we were given regeneration, being born from above, the moment we embrace Jesus, the Holy Spirit took up residence in our lives and remains with us. The moment that we were born again and we embraced Jesus and we were given salvation, we recognized that God set us apart from the world's population and instantaneously sanctified us, but then he progressively sanctifies us with every breath we breathe on this side of eternity. When we embrace Jesus, we're guaranteed the state of glorification, which says that I will be with Jesus throughout eternity, and sin and all of its effects will be gone and no more, and I will give my God uninterrupted affection for all of eternity. When we preach that salvation includes faith, it includes hope, it includes reconciliation, and we say this is the gorgeous gift of salvation, that's number two. It leads then to number three, won't you embrace Jesus? Won't you accept Jesus? Making him known and preaching salvation is a multifaceted gift. And then asking the non-believer who knows their sins are many, don't you want to receive forgiveness? When we love the Lord, these are the practices, I believe, that gauge our expressions of love for him. Would you stand with me as we call the worship team up? The sister in this text knew the weightiness of her sins. Jesus forgave her. The Pharisee who stood in judgment of her, who was actually in error the whole time. I pray that it would not be named amongst us that we are practicing like Simon, but rather we are like this sister, understanding the weightiness of our sin, understanding the beauty of forgiveness, and that we would be freed up 
to tear down the idols and the comforts in our hearts that are direct competition to Jesus. And we would love our Lord and unashamedly express to him our love for him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this narrative in scripture. I thank you for this sister's boldness. And I thank you, Jesus, that you never reject those who come to you. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow our hearts to reflect on the gorgeous truth of the gospel, that we would recognize the weight of ourselves being lawbreakers, but yet that highlights the perfection of Jesus who kept the whole of the law and was sinless and remains sinless to this day. And just as he is the only one who can forgive sins, for those who maybe have never received forgiveness of sins, I pray, Father, that you would draw them to Christ and allow them to declare bankruptcy and say, I am a guilty sinner who cannot pay for my sins, and I believe by faith Jesus is the only one who can pay for my sins. And for those of us who do know Jesus, who have tasted of the glorious grace that we are recipients of when by faith we embrace him as Lord, then I pray you would keep our hearts in a place that are softened by your love, that we would keep pursuing you, that we would keep expressing love for you, that we would never outgrow the gospel, but we would consistently think through the nuances of our life and how the gospel speaks to them and how we should see Jesus in a greater level of love than ever Father, I beg that you would give us all a greater desperation for our Savior, that we would make him known to the world around us, that we would show them the salvation as a multifaceted gift, and that we would give them the opportunity to embrace Jesus as we have so that they would go in peace like us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.